Hello and welcome to the HOA Show, where we discuss the news, problems, trends, and critical issues relating to life in a homeowner association. Join us every episode, and together we'll explore how to survive and thrive in the dizzying world of HOAs. Hello and welcome to the HOA Show. I'm your host, Ryan Gazelle, and in this episode, we'll be discussing the insurance concerns around hiring business partners to service your community. I'm joined today by two extremely knowledgeable people, Tim Klein and A.J. Scott, both of the Klein Agency insurance brokers. Tim is the CEO and founder of the Klein Agency, which he founded in 1998 to serve almost exclusively the insurance needs of common interest developments. He holds the prestigious CIRMS designation and has written countless articles and insurance board development courses for CAI. Andrea June Scott, who goes by AJ, joined the Klein Agency in 2006. She runs the Orange County office for the Klein Agency and holds both the CIRMS and CPCU designations. She's also very active in the Orange County chapter of CAI, as well as the Independent Insurance Agents and Brokers of America. Thank you both for lending your expertise today. AJ, I'm sure you get asked about hiring business partners all the time. Uh, I mean, we say business partners, we're, we're referring to vendors, essentially business partners is a, a better term. There's a lot of confusion around how a board can best protect themselves. What do they need to be concerned about? I, I guess step one would be making sure to hire only licensed business partners. Can you speak to why that's important? Yeah, I sure can. We really feel that associations are best protected when they're hiring only licensed workers. The reasons why a license might be critical, first of all, a license can formally establish a business or individual as decidedly separate from the association, giving the association more confidence that these workers are not going to be deemed their employees for tax or workers' comp purposes. Secondly, in California, if you hire an unlicensed worker to perform a task for which a license is required, you become their employer by default. They are no longer an independent contractor. And if they're injured on the job, you, the HOA, that is, are responsible for workers' comp benefits. If the association doesn't have a workers' comp policy, this has some frightening implications because the state's uninsured employers' benefit trust fund will step in and pay the benefits, but they will attempt to recover all of those funds from what they will consider to be the illegally uninsured employer. This will result in a lien being placed on every home or lot in the development until those monies are paid back. So that can be very troubling for the owners while they can't sell or refinance till that lien is satisfied. And very expensive. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Sorry, before you go on, how do you know if a license is required? There's a great website that the Contractor State License Board has put together. We'll give the URL at the end of the program, but you can check there for which jobs do require a license. To be clear, I think there's 41 separate licenses issued in the state of California. Wow. Everything from plumbing to sheet metal work to drywall contracting and so forth. Okay. AJ, back to the licensing. Yeah. A license provides some assurance of at least a minimum level of competence. It doesn't guarantee quality work, but at least it's something, a starting point. And a correct license would provide an avenue of grievance in the event of a dispute. You can file a complaint with the contractor state license board and you can view past complaints. The state of California maintains a database of complaints against licensed contractors, as well as whether he or she has ever lost the license or been sanctioned. So that can serve as a valuable resource. But lastly, an unlicensed contractor might be less likely to obtain a permit for work that might require one, and that can impact property values or saleability. And it's a way to hold them accountable. 
That's exactly right. Yeah. So that website that we mentioned, you can check licenses online by either license number, business name, or an individual's name. You can look those up easily. So we'll give that link at the end of the program. And Tim, the next step after determining whether or not the business partner has a license would be what? What kind of insurance does a business partner maintain? That's that's really critical. It's just more than having coverage on their automobile. You want to make sure that they have general liability coverage to protect the association. So if it's the contractor's actions causes bodily injury or property damage on the premises, it's the contractor's policy that responds, not the one maintained by the HOA. Similarly, if they want to maintain products and completed operations, which basically covers the workmanship that's done after they leave the premises. If the workmanship ends up being faulty and results in bodily injury or property damage, it's the contractor's policy to re- respond on behalf of the business partner not the association's policy. Workers' compensation coverage is important because on general liability policy, there's a specific exclusion for work-related injuries. And because of that work-related injury exclusion, you must make sure that the contractor maintains their own workers' compensation policy in their name. And we'd like to see a workers' compensation policy in the name of the association in the unlikely event that the association is going to be the employer at the time of loss. And actually, I should add that uh, we did a podcast just recently the HOA show did on workers' comp coverage for communities and why it's important for them to maintain it. And uh, the client agency has a number of articles and a video on their website discussing the topic of workers' comp for communities. Right, Tim? Sure enough. But just having that coverage, the general liability coverage, is not enough for a business partner. You want to make sure the policy also extends an additional church status to the association and also to your management company. If that policy doesn't extend coverage, then you can still have a circumstance where your own policy gets tagged, as opposed to having the contractor be responding, who should really be responsible for the workmanship and the work-related injuries. Have you seen circumstances, Tim, where, you know, the board's trying to do the best they can, or the manager even, and they're checking the uh, certificate? Sure enough, the association has been named additionally insured, but not the management company. And then what happens? Yeah, this is really a problem because there's an agreement between the association and the management company which requires the association to indemnify and hold the manager harmless. What that means is is that if there's a circumstance where they're required contractually to indemnify and hold the manager harmless and the manager has not been named as an additional insured, there's no way to fund that obligation. And that effectively means that the association would have to fund both the defense and the indemnity for that manager. Which could get pretty embarrassing if it was the manager that signed the contract, right? And hopefully the manager's not signing the contract. But yes, absolutely. You don't want to have a circumstance where the manager signed the contract and didn't realize that the policy the contractor was providing didn't name them as an additional insured. Again, this is a big, big deal, Ryan. These defense costs alone, if there is a bodily injury case, it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars just in defense, plus the indemnity, meaning the actual award to the injured worker or the injured party. Those are the folks that sustained bodily injury or property damage. So it's just the general liability component that could be a real icy slope for the association. How do they make sure that both the manager and the association have been named additionally insured? Is it enough to just have a certificate of insurance? You know, I like certificates. But in my opinion, certificates aren't really worth the paper they're printed on in most circumstances. It represents what the policy was in force at a time, date, and the time when the certificate was printed. Hopefully a little bit more. But what I know it doesn't do is it doesn't convey any benefits to the additional insured party. It's just a typed document. And if you really want to know if you're named as an additional insured, you need to take some extra steps. There are at least two ways you could do it. 
One, you could request an entire copy of the policy, which is a lot to read through. These general liability policies covering contractors and business partners could be literally hundreds of pages. Or better yet, you could request a letter from the broker on his or her letterhead confirming that the management company and the association is added as an additional insured. Have that attached to the copy of the actual endorsement itself. That way you know the carrier is assuring you that the policy reads with these two parties and they've been named as an additional insured, so there won't be any surprises at the time of loss. And that kind of leads us into our next portion. What what exactly would that endorsement typically say, AJ? Yeah, that's another piece, another argument for why it's great to have a copy of the endorsement. That's the only way to know what it says. A lot of times you might see additional insured on a certificate, but the actual policy language might say that the carrier is extending additional insured status automatically to any party with whom they're insured, being the business partner, has agreed in a written contract to provide additional insured coverage. Most contractors maintain these blanket style additional insured endorsements, which state that their insurance will extend these protections as required by written contract or agreement. In other words, the endorsements are only going to be activated if your contract with that business partner specifically requires them. So the endorsement is only as good as the underlying contract that you have with that company. This is why it's so important for associations to have standard written contracts in place with all of their business partners. And a knowledgeable attorney who specializes in community association law will be your best resource for preparing this. But we do have a few recommendations at a minimum on the insurance side for what that contract should include whenever you're contracting with a business partner. There are four things that we like to see in contracts under the insurance language. We want to see that for any claims or suits arising from the contractors or any of their subcontractors' operations or completed operations on the association's premises, the contractor, the business partner, will indemnify and hold the association and the management company harmless. So hold harmless and indemnity language is number one. Number two, the association and management company will each be named as an additional insured on the contractor's general liability policy Just like Tim was talking about, both of those entities, association and management company, if applicable, need to be included to protect the association because there's an underlying management contract that requires the association to extend that protection. That additional insured language on the contractor's GL policy, general liability, should also include primary and non-contributory wording. That is to prevent a situation where their insurance comes into play but it only shares the loss with your insurance because insurance policies have some sneaky language called other insurance language that often will say, if other valid and collectible insurance exists for this claim, we're just going to share the loss. We're going to pay our proportionate share instead of covering it on a primary basis. So you want the business partner's insurance to be primary and non-contributory. Number three, The contractor must maintain workers' compensation coverage during the entire time they are working on association premises. This item may be negotiable if it's a sole proprietor with no employees. We had talked about that during the workers' comp podcast, so I do encourage people to check that out. But if it's a company with any staff, they need to maintain workers' comp coverage during the entire time they're working on association premises. 
And finally, number four, the contractor should agree to waive subrogation against the association and the management company under both their general liability and workers' comp policies. Subrogation is when an insurance company pays a loss, but then turns around and tries to recover from a party they perceive as negligent. So if a contractor has insurance and their insurance pays a loss, but then they turn around and try to subrogate against the association or the management company to collect their losses because they deem that somehow the association was negligent, then you're back where you started and and it's not really a benefit to you that you went through all this trouble to rely on the contractor's insurance. So any attorney that specializes, AJ, in community associations would probably have uh, some sort of a template that they could provide the association with covering all of these points. I'm sure they do, yeah. I'm just going to say two points here. One is that there's no such thing as a standard contract. And I can assure you that when a business partner brings a contract to your board meeting, that it's probably a a one-sided contract. That is, probably his attorneys wrote it in such a way that provides him with the most protection. We're concerned about you as a client, and we want to make sure that you have the most protection. And that means having an attorney review the contract. And if I can add a fifth point to this excellent list that AJ shared with you, and that is, if you're a contractor, and you go to meet with your own agent or broker, and he, he's the one who writes your liability coverage, and they have a meeting with the underwriter, the underwriter is going to basically say to the contractor, look, you can build synagogues, you can build freeways, you can build swimming pools, but please don't build condominium associations. HOAs aren't our favorite thing. In fact, general liability carriers look at HOAs as just a built-in class action lawsuit. And so they're very, very frightened of writing HOAs and writing contractors that work on HOAs. And because of that, they will try to sneak an endorsement onto the policy that excludes HOAs. That's called an HOA or condo exclusion, and it comes in a varying number of forms. But what it basically does is it says to you, you can work on any kind of project, build up to a certain limit of terms of dollar amount, or a certain number of doors, but please don't work on HOAs in general, and that's been a real problem. In fact, you know, if you get yourself named as an additional insured, and you can get your manager named as an additional insured, but nevertheless, it could be a sneaky HOA or condo exclusion that would completely preclude the carrier from providing any coverage, including defense for any claim that might arise. So in addition to that letter that we got confirming that you've been added as an additional insured, we'd like them to add a second statement confirming that the agent or broker is writing the general liability coverage and that contractor is confirming that there's no HOA or condo exclusion. That's a great point. Sometimes it's called a multifamily exclusion or a residential construction exclusion. So it goes by a variety of names. Like Tim said, it's definitely something to watch out for. And Tim, would all of these principles apply just to the vendors or the business partners that the association hires or also to the individual unit owner contractors that are hired? Well, I think that's a bit of a slippery slope. I do like the fact that many CCNRs require individual unit owners to provide evidence of coverage. So they have that kind of uh, evidence of insurance before work is done on the premises. But to how much the association engages in that activity beyond being named as an additional insured, I just don't know. I think it's really up to the individual community and their comfort level. But I think it's fair to say that if a contractor is doing work inside the unit, I'd like to see the association have evidence of coverage. So if there's a fire or resulting loss, we have a clear path for recovery. 
If you're fortunate enough to be also named as an additional insured, that's great. But if you can imagine a 100-unit project, there's probably two or three units at any given time. It's going through some kind of reconstruction. It'd be a nightmare, I think, to require much beyond that. So if, as you suggest, just having some sort of a policy in place that requires the unit owner to provide evidence of insurance before the work takes place and to name the association additionally insured if and when possible. Association is an additional insured. That's correct. Right. Certainly if they're going to be working in the common areas, if they're, for example, installing an electronic vehicle charging station in the community parking garage, if they're going to be working on premises in the common area, then you do kind of, in my opinion, and I'd like to hear Tim's thoughts on this, but then I would say maybe prioritize additional insured endorsements from those contractors above the contractors that may be working exclusively inside an individual unit. Yeah, I would agree. I think the only challenge is that it's hard sometimes to get to a unit without traversing over a common area to get there. And we've seen a lot of damage to entry gates and entry features as a result of oversized construction vehicles. And, you know, they leave stuff on the premises, so there's also a trip and fall hazard. Those types of things, I think, could result in a claim. And AJ is absolutely right. You just have to pick your battles when it comes to these types of extensions of coverage. I think it's important to remember that really, you know, when we're talking about these topics, it's really just comfort levels of risk. What is the association comfortable with? What are they willing to accept as a risk? And what can they pass on to the potential business partner? Right? Yep, you're absolutely right. This is just risk transfer 101. This is how can I make sure that the risk that the individual contractor has created remains on their shoulders and doesn't get transferred over to the association. And by being named as an additional insured, or by having the manager named as an additional insured, by getting evidence that they have workers' compensation coverage, you're closing these potential recovery areas and making sure that it remains on the contractor or business partner's shoulders and doesn't get extended to the HOA. Tim, I wonder if you can speak to a topic that, that comes up a lot, which is the handyman. What do we do with handyman? Do we have to make sure that they have certificates of insurance, that they have licenses? This is a really tough one because while there are 41 designations in the state of California that is contractors, separate contractors' licenses, um, there isn't one for a handyman. And unfortunately, sometimes handymen get engaged in activities that really require a license. I think that it would be advantageous to require a handyman who holds himself out to be a handyman to have a general liability coverage and workers' compensation coverage to the extent possible. And the reason I say that is because it's sometimes difficult for a handyman, and he may occasionally bring a buddy along to help him with materials, which is fine. But as soon as you have a second person on the premises, you no longer have a sole proprietor. You have an employer with an employee. And so there's a workers' comp exposure there. In the State Workers' Compensation Appeals Board of California, it's extremely arbitrary and they will deem the association to be the employer in the most unlikely circumstances. So as I talked about in a previous uh, podcast on workers' comp, it's, it's just a safety net to protect the association against these type of circumstances. But handymen are tough, I'll admit. And you know, if it's over a certain height, if you know it's a plumbing issue or electrical issue, these all require licensed contractors. Yeah, a handyman can do it, but do you want the exposure that causes a fire or burns down the project? Now, you mentioned earlier that the certificates are really not worth the paper that they're printed on. We get the question a lot, what does it mean when your name is listed in the certificate holder box? Does that mean anything? 
That means you're holding that piece of paper. <laughs> but it means really nothing beyond that. I mean, there's no obligation on the part of the carrier. There used to be language in the old certificates that said, we will endeavor to notify you, which really meant we were not really going to notify you effectively. I've seen all kinds of things typed on certificates. I know you guys have too. And we actually use an outside firm for certificates of insurance. But I can tell you for most agents or brokers, the cert person is the newest employee in the agency, knows the least amount about insurance, and is liable to type most anything on a certificate just to get the angry loan officer or escrow officer off the line. So I'd be very cautious about relying on certificates. I'd get a copy of the policy or at least an endorsement and a cover letter from the agent or broker to make sure that your interests are properly protected. Another point, Tim, um, you know, we kind of have been discussing this with special attention to uh, contractors working on the association property, but this could also apply to off-site business partners as well. I know the new election law that just passed, you know, now requires independent election services or, or now has certain requirements for the board elections. And if you're hiring an independent election service, what should they be looking for from them? The same things? Well, I think if they're not on the premises, I think the workers' compensation exposure and the GL exposure, that is the general liability exposure, is fairly modest. Unless someone cuts their self opening the envelope up, I can't imagine there's going to be that kind of exposure. But from a professional liability standpoint, however, I think there is a large exposure. That means that if they do not conduct the election according to the civil code or according to the requirements in the CCNRs, whichever is greater, I suppose, there is liability for the board. And the board has hired the contractor for the specific purposes of overseeing the election so they don't get in hot water. So I'd like to see the election person who's holding them out as a professional to do the right thing, and that's to get an errors and omissions policy or an E&O policy that would protect them. Now, we can't get the association named as an additional insured on that circumstance, but at least you'll know that if the election officer is not correct in the terms in which the way they've conducted the election, there may be some potential right of recovery. If the association gets sued first, they can turn around and sue the elections person. Yeah, I think that's a, a very important point. We're getting a lot of calls and we're seeing a lot of folks that are trying to, to come to grips with this new election requirements. And uh, that's an area of potential liability that, that can be avoided with a, a quick, easy step. And the whole point is you don't want to be relying on these individuals or these companies' financial wherewithal absent insurance. You want to know that there is an insurance company who's rated and regulated behind them to answer if something goes wrong, right? That's why that errors and omissions coverage is important. You don't want to rely on, you know, XYZ inspector of elections company and whatever money they might happen to have in the bank or not have to help you if you get in hot water in that process. I'm just going to say it's a nonprofit corporation with assets of millions and millions of dollars. It's not a mom and pop operation. Unit owners are going to keep a real careful eye on how those elections have been conducted. And if they're not conducted according to the state law, they're probably going to go out and try to find a remedy. Yeah. AJ, you've posted this article on the client agency website, correct? Discussing all of this? Yeah. Yeah. We go through these points in writing and we've got a couple of exhibits attached as well. One of them is a helpful checklist that kind of goes through for each you know, business partner that you hire. Start at the Contractor State License Board website, check their license, and as you're going through their certificate of insurance, here's what to look for. As you're going through your contract with them, here's what to look for. 
So that can be a helpful resource. So we do have that posted on the client agency website. And should they contact the client agency every time they have a a vendor? Please no. (laughs) No, that's not our business as a primary reviewer of all of your contracts and all of your contractors insurance. Um, Unfortunately, we can't serve as a full-time consultant for that process, but we do have this literature available to assist you as a courtesy in that process. And the California State Licensing Board website is www.cslb.ca.gov. And you can go there to check uh, if the vendor or business partner you're hiring has a, a license, one of those 41 licenses. Tim, where can our listeners go for more information from you? Well, the best place to go is our website, which is clientagency.com. And remember, the last name is spelled C-L-I-N-E. So it's www.clientagency.com. There's helpful videos and great articles you can download and share with your fellow board members, and we encourage you to do so. Well, that's our show for today. A special thanks to our experts, Tim Klein and AJ Scott, for their time and wisdom. As we end our episode, we'd like to remind our listeners that if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for topics that you'd like to learn more about, you can email us at feedback at hoashow.org. Join us next time on The HOA Show. To share or subscribe to The HOA Show, visit us at hoashow.org. There, you'll be able to listen to other episodes, find helpful resources relating to HOAs, provide feedback, submit questions, and check out other great stuff. The HOA Show podcast has been made possible by the contributions of Klein Agency insurance brokers, leaders in the community association industry. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast, its presenters and guests do not constitute legal advice. For more information on how the topics and discussion apply to you, please consult with your own legal counsel.